Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 10, Elephant in the Room, in which Lachlan Murdoch wins big twice in radio, loses big twice bidding for TV sports, then watches while everything Channel 10 tries fails until it is put into administration, unable to even pay its bills. As a producer leads the way towards the studio, Lachlan Murdoch crosses the corridor ahead of us into the control room. He's carrying a bottle of champagne. It's a little early for a drink, given that it's not yet 7am on a Thursday, but it's a big day. We walk into the brightly lit studio, the biggest space inside Network 10's Sydney headquarters on Saunders Street, and are led to a couple of battered office chairs in the dark corner being used to corral on-air guests. It's my first chance to get a good look at what has until today been a well-kept secret, the set of 10's brand new show, Breakfast. In the centre of the studio, on a circular raised plinth, is a red sofa. It's scattered with cushions, decorated with newspaper headlines. Between the sofa and three bulky studio cameras is a coffee table designed to look like an old-fashioned travel chest. The day's newspapers are neatly piled on one side. Off to the right, 16 monitors have been installed together to create a giant weather wall. Behind the sofa are a series of objects that give the viewer the sense of having mistakenly wandered into an upmarket pawnbroker. Among the random artefacts are a miniaturised windmill on a tower, a motor scooter, a vintage suitcase and, in the shadows, a sculpture of what appears to be a llama or possibly an oversized cat. Sunrise or the Today Show, it is not. To our surprise, my colleague Brooke Hempill and I are about to go on air. Breakfast had been due to launch next week and the inexperienced crew had been recording a series of rehearsal shows. We'd been booked to come in this morning as guests for a practice run on what was due to become a regular segment on the world of marketing. We expected to talk about the increasingly creepy ways that brands have been gathering data. But yesterday evening, the 22nd of February 2012, former PM Kevin Rudd resigned as Foreign Minister, triggering speculation that he is about to launch a spill against his successor as PM, Julia Gillard. So Breakfast has launched a few days early to cover the political drama. 
now Brooke and I are due to talk about the relative strengths of Brand Rudd versus Brand Gillard. On the sofa are Breakfast's three co-hosts. On the left is celebrity doctor Andrew Rochford, wearing a dark suit and striped lilac shirt. In the centre is controversial Kiwi presenter Paul Henry, who's being introduced to Australian TV viewers for the first time. He's also in a suit, combined with a pastel shirt. He's wearing a pair of glasses with thick, dark rims. And on the right is former 10 Early News finance presenter Catherine Robinson in a light pink jacket. If there's any doubt about who gets star billing, the trio are listening to voicemails from viewers for what will be a regular segment called The Henry Hotline. You have got to be kidding with these hosts on this show. Nor have I ever seen two out of three unprofessional newscasters ever in my life, offers a well-spoken female voice. Smiling at the camera, Paul Henry tells the unnamed caller, I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank you for watching, and I know that you're going to be a long-term breakfast supporter. The next recording is an ochre male voice. Who's that bloke with the glasses on? I don't know him, don't want him. Adjusting his glasses with comic timing, Henry tells viewers, That guy, I actually didn't like. Rochford throws to a commercial break and vacates the couch. As Brooke and I settle onto the sofa in the gap left by Rochford, Robinson tells Henry that she's been communicating with executive producer Magella Weemers, who's in the control room. Magella would like me to pick up from the break, Robinson tells him. Let's see how we go, he responds. The floor manager counts us in. As the red light comes on above the camera, Henry welcomes viewers back to the show. Two years earlier. Smooth operator. Lachlan Murdoch was wearing a couple of hats. At 1 Saunders Street in Piermont, he was acting CEO of Network 10 while he waited for James Warburton to finish the gardening leave enforced by Seven. And at 33 Saunders Street, Murdoch's radio company, DMG, was rebuilding Nova's breakfast show and figuring out how to relaunch its second network, again. This time, Murdoch was determined to learn the lessons from the classic rock flop and do it right. He made a big hire. Paul Jackson's arrival as DMG's programming chief was a decade in the making. His predecessor, Dean Buchanan, had almost succeeded in recruiting Jackson to work at Nova Sydney back in 2001. At the time, Paul Jackson Park, to give him his full name, had been on gardening leave after departing his job at London's Capital Radio. He'd been waiting to take charge of the music at one of the UK's most high-profile commercial radio stations, Virgin Radio. Founded by Richard Branson and later taken over by eccentric TV and radio star Chris Evans, Virgin was the UK's biggest rock station. Radio was in Jackson's blood. His father, Richard Park, was arguably the UK's most influential commercial radio executive. Jackson dropped the Park from his surname to try and find his own way in the industry. While Jackson was waiting to start at Virgin, Buchanan had tried to woo him away from the UK, flying him to Sydney to see the then-fledgling Nova at first hand. During a 48-hour charm offensive, Nova offered Jackson a contract. Although torn, 
Jackson had decided to see through his commitment to Virgin, which was to last six years, before moving on to one of the top jobs in UK radio as programming director for Global Radio's Capital Radio and XFM. Nine years later, though, he was ready to make the leap when Buchanan decided it was time to move on. It came out of the blue. I got back from a trip with Global to the south of France and there was a voicemail waiting for me, Jackson recalls. By the time he arrived in November 2010, it was already obvious that classic rock could not be saved. It was struggling to get above a 4% share of the Sydney and Melbourne radio audiences. Osterio's rock station Triple M was holding firm, and Australian radio network's WSFM Sydney was playing classic rock too. Triple M, WS and classic rock, everyone was playing the same records, says Jackson. The first instruction for Murdoch and his consigliera, Siobhan McKenna, was to get on top of Nova, which was struggling to get its Sydney breakfast show back on track. The brief from Lachlan and Siobhan was to concentrate on Nova, to rush into anything would have been absolute suicide, recalls Jackson. The long-running Merrick and Rosso show, with Merrick Watts and Tim Ross, had added Home and Away star Kate Ritchie to the lineup in 2008, only for Ross to announce his departure after nearly a decade with the station at the end of 2009. This had then led to a reboot for 2010, with Watts being joined by singer Ricky Lee Coulter and comedian Scott Dooley. Coulter was then dropped the following October and replaced by Katie Monty Diamond, who was on the show for only five months. The American Dolls Breakfast Show had then limped on for most of 2011, before Jackson called a halt in August. Instead, National Drive Time hosts Ryan Fitzgerald and Michael Whitfley would get the gig and make it their own. Once Nova's Sydney breakfast was sorted, it was time to make a plan for what to do with DMG's second set of radio licences for Sydney and Melbourne, avoiding the expensive mistakes of Vega and the cheap mistakes of classic rock. The art of radio programming comes in finding a niche wide enough to build an audience, but uncontested enough to build a position. It was exactly how Nova had been created a decade before. Just as television programmers can't afford to be elitist in their main channel choices if they want to build a mainstream audience, radio programmers can't be too cool in their music choices. They leave that to the ABC's Triple J. In the back of his mind... Jackson knew what he wanted to do. As a young programmer on the UK's Capital Radio, he'd worked on music for The Love Zone, a late-night weekend show offering ballads from the likes of The Bee Gees, Michael Bolton, Air Supply and Chris DeBerg. Another reference point was UK station Magic FM, which operated a format known in industry jargon as soft adult contemporary. Think Enya. Under the leadership of Jackson's father, Richard, Magic had improved its ratings by having celebrity hosts at the weekend and moving away from weekday personality presenters under a more music, less talk ethos. When Jackson began to sketch out the idea in late 2010, those pre-Spotify days meant that creating a playlist was a far more manual process. I was working it out song by song and adding each one into the system says Jackson. Tracks like If You Leave Me Now by Chicago, How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees, 
and All Out of Love by Air Supply began to shape the playlist and raise eyebrows for the staff of the pop-focused Nova, who could see them starting to appear in the playout system. Jackson also began to build artists from the 1970s into the playlist, Fleetwood Mac, The Eagles. In Australian radio, the ultimate uncool music star at the time was Michael Bublé. We felt the gap was to play Bublé. He was a best-selling artist, but nobody was playing his stuff. With the arrival of the Fitzy and Whipper show in the breakfast slot, it was also time to take the playlist for Nova, slightly younger and poppier, opening up the potential gap a little more. The plan was that over 40 listeners who didn't want to hear Calvin Harris, Pitbull and Ed Sheeran on Nova could listen to a new station instead. The blueprint for Smooth FM was finally agreed during a two-day strategy session at the Murdoch family retreat of Cavern Station near Yass in country New South Wales. In a male-dominated media world, Lachlan Murdoch had put his trust in some of the very few senior women in the industry. Along with Siobhan McKenna, those at the Cavern Gathering included DMG CEO Cathy O'Connor and Chief Digital Officer Rebecca Horn, who had entered the Murdoch family orbit, running MySpace's Australian and then international operations. Later, she would become the boss of Apple ANZ. There will be important rules for Smooth FM. It would not be positioned as an oldies station. Presenters would never tell the listeners what year a song was from. Unlike every other radio station in the market, there'd be no big breakfast show. At 15 songs per hour, Smooth FM would play more music than any other station. There'd be no celebrity interviews. In a market dominated by Kyle Sanderland's latest outrage, Smooth FM would always be safe to have on in the car with the kids. We'll be the least crude station. And weekends would be the province of cheery celebrity presenters. With the new format a tightly held secret, Jackson began a round of recruiting on-air talent. During meetings, many potential presenters talked themselves out of slots by trying to persuade him what big personalities they were. That was the opposite of what he was looking for. The plan was for it to be all about the music. Future Sydney Breakfast presenter Bogart Torelli was recruited after Jackson heard her hosting a Saturday show on Macquarie Radio Network's second string AM music station, 2CH. Melbourne Breakfast host Mike Perso had been with the company since 2003 in programming roles. And future drive-time host Byron Webb had been combining a full-time job lecturing at Sydney's Broadcasting College afters with occasional shifts for MCM Media's syndicated Better Homes and Gardens radio show. The weekend celebrities would not present live. They'd simply be given a set of scripted links to pre-record every few weeks. TV personalities such as Jason Donovan, Richard Wilkins and David Campbell were signed up. Marketing was also going to be essential. It was one of the areas where classic rock had failed. They brought Tony Harlow, boss of Michael Bublé's record label, Warner Music, in on the secret. Harlow helped broker a deal with Bublé's management for the star to become the face of the station. Legendary Australian ad man, Ted Horton, the man who'd go on to create the infamous Coles Down Down campaign with Status Quo, shot the Smooth FM ad 
which was to run on TV for years. It featured an exhausted mum coming in through the front door with arms full of shopping bags and turning on the radio to 95.3 FM. As Haven't Met You Yet started to play and the mum slumped into her chair with her eyes closed, Buble handed her a cup of coffee before she pushed him away to concentrate on the music. The song would also be the first heard on the news station. Ahead of the relaunch, classic rock gradually started playing less rock. By Christmas 2011, it was no longer playing rock at all. Then it dropped the name. For the next few months, the station was simply known as Sydney's 95.3 and Melbourne's 91.5. Fleetwood Mac, Phil Collins and Huey Lewis became the staple playlist. Those classic rock mugs and t-shirts sent out to the media industry were about to become collector's items. Launch date for Smooth FM was set for the 21st of May 2012. At the press announcement of the new station, held at the Star in Sydney, I tried to encourage Jackson and Chief Marketing Officer Tony Thomas into making a prediction on how Smooth FM would rate. Any sort of prediction would make them a hostage to fortune, quoted back every time they missed it. It makes for good news copy. With classic rock bobbling on a 4% audience share, was that enough? I asked. Above that, replied Thomas. We're obviously not satisfied with that. We're not going to say a number, but we're expecting the results to come. I fished again. Presumably you're not going to get to a 10% share. The expression on Jackson's face suggested I was on track. I'm almost tempted, he conceded before Thomas jokingly raised a hand to stop his colleague from saying too much. Those results took a while. In the first set of radio ratings, Smooth FM saw its share actually go backwards on what Classic Rock had achieved in Sydney and Melbourne. But after that, they started to grow. And grow. It took more than three years for Smooth to become the number one FM Sydney station for the first time. It finally got there in August 2015, with a share of 8.2% of the listening audience. By then, DMG had rebranded as Nova Entertainment. It took even longer in Melbourne, with Smooth finally topping the FM battleground in April 2019, with an 11% share. On that sort of share, any station can make a profit, let alone one with the low overheads of Smooth. The company had gone from bleeding money to becoming a cash-generating machine. And perhaps just as importantly, there was finally evidence that Lachlan Murdoch could succeed in business outside of News Corp. No plan B. The downside of being a media scion is in those who have come before. Kerry Packer grew up in the burning gaze of his father Frank. In turn, James Packer was forever in Kerry's bulky shadow. Ryan Stokes will always have to contend with comparisons to his father Kerry, who created the family media empire, Seven West Media. Andrew Gordon owed his place at the helm of regional broadcasting giant Wynn Corporation to his father Bruce. And for Lachlan Murdoch, the impossible standard would always be the fact that he's not his father, Rupert. The rise of Nova Entertainment showed that Lachlan had it in him to build business success away from his father's sphere of influence. A decade after he invested, 
admittedly with family money, in what some saw as the sunset industry of radio, Nova Entertainment is unquestionably more profitable now than it was then as DMG Radio. But on the other side of the ledger comes Lachlan Murdoch's clumsy involvement in Network 10 as an owner and briefly as its CEO. The story of Australian media over the past decade is one in which very few CEOs have left their company in a better state than they found it. Often, nobody could have done better with the hands they were dealt. The story of 10 would be one in which each new boss would blame their predecessor for the errors they inherited and then commit a whole set of new mistakes. Lachlan Murdoch's turn in the 10 hot seat came in 2011 while he waited for James Warburton to come off the bench. A lot went wrong on and off the screen while Warburton sat in limbo. There were two consequential off-screen moments for 10 in 2011, one in missing out on a key format and one in losing a key sport. The most promising overseas reality format to come up for grabs in 2011 was The Voice. Nine outbid 10, despite the fact that it was being made by Shine, the company founded and run by Lachlan Murdoch's sister, Elizabeth, which was bought by News Corp in April 2011. Both networks' paths would have been different if 10's $18 million bid for The Voice had not been topped by 9's $20 million. The show turned around 9's fortunes. One of the most significant sporting rights deals of the decade came up in 2011 too. The free-to-air, pay-TV and digital rights to the AFL over the next five years. The sporting code was key to the TV audiences in Melbourne, Perth and Adelaide. In the previous AFL deal, 7 and 10 had shared the weekly free-to-air rights with two games each, while Foxtel had broadcast the other four to paying subscribers. To use the sporting terminology, the new rights deal was an eight-pointer for 10 and 7. Lose the rights and there's a massive hole in the schedule. Win and you've got guaranteed weekend audiences, which give you something to talk to your advertisers about for the next five years. It was an even bigger deal for 10 because its digital channel 1 was sports-focused. As a result, those rights were expensive, even potentially loss-making for the networks. Sometimes the TV companies couldn't bring in enough sponsorship to cover the costs, instead having to justify it as a promotional launchpad for other programming. In what proved to be a major blunder, Murdoch didn't go all out to retain the AFL. Instead, when the deal was done in April 2011, Seven got all the free-to-air rights, four games per week, double what it had before. Fox Sports got the pay TV rights, allowing it to show all nine games every week to Foxtel and Ostar audiences. And Telstra bought the digital rights. The total deal was worth a headline-grabbing $1.253 billion over five years. Murdoch has never publicly explained the strategy behind his decision to let the AFL rights go. It's true that 10's costs have been growing while its revenues have been flat, so it could simply have been about cost control. But others suspect that he was saving the money to try to win the NRL rights instead, which were due to come up the next year. NRL was closer to his heart. News Limited still owned the Melbourne Storm at that stage, along with most of the Brisbane Broncos. 
and NRL had sprung out of the 1990s Super League war between the Murdochs and the Packers. On screen, Ten's 2011 plans, left behind by former CEO Grant Blackley, quickly unravelled. Ratings for the new two-and-a-half-hour block of news were poor. Before the launch of 6pm with George Negus, I'd asked the show's executive producer, Tony Ritchie, to set an acceptable ratings number, putting to him a figure of one million viewers. That will be way too much, came back Ritchie. I'd be happy with half a million, and I'd like to think that 10 would be happy with half a million. Even that conservative number was optimistic. TV viewing habits form over decades, and the public were used to choosing between 9 and 7 for a 6pm news bulletin. Those who wanted news at 5pm went to 10, and those who wanted it at 7pm went to the ABC. Since its late January launch, with an opening number of 606,000, ratings for 6pm with George Negus quickly fell and were soon bouncing between 300,000 and 400,000, while 7 and 9 were doing over a million viewers each. One of the first decisions taken by Murdoch was to move the 6pm George Negus show out of direct competition with 9 News and 7 News by axing 10's national 6.30pm evening news and pushing Negus back half an hour. In late March 2011, it became 6.30pm with George Negus. Now, Negus will be up against 9's A Current Affair and 7's Today Tonight. And 10 would now run state-by-state News at 5 bulletins for an extraordinarily long 90 minutes. And Murdoch was looking for cost cuts. Around 100 newsroom jobs, many of the staff only recently hired to create the new news output, were axed. News director Jim Carroll quit. Murdoch soldiered on with Negus for most of the year, but the show's ratings did not improve in its new slot. It was finally axed in October. Half-hour current affairs show, the 7pm project, which had launched two years earlier, would now start at 6.30pm and be stretched to 60 minutes and renamed The Project. Chief Programming Officer David Mott had to front the embarrassing announcement. The decision to discontinue 6.30 was a commercial one and in no way reflects on the quality of George, the programme or the team, Mott said in the press release. It was also time to discover whether lightning could strike twice. Having turned MasterChef into a huge hit against expectations, could the same happen with The Renovators? It was a new format aiming to combine the spirit of MasterChef with the subject matter of Nine's popular home renovation show, The Block, along with a touch of the UK's grand designs. Commercially, The Renovators looked like a success, even before it went to air. Bunnings Warehouse, LG Electronics, Taubman's, Freedom, Ford Australia, Commonwealth Bank, KFC and Yellow Pages signed on for sponsorship packages. It was a big risk. The Renovators was not based on an overseas format, so there was no detailed production playbook to work from. And not only was it an expensive show to make, but like MasterChef, it was stripped across the schedule, so it would be on every weeknight. The reward for doing a stripped show is the efficiencies it can offer in driving down the cost per hour of television. The strategy had worked well for 10 with MasterChef. 
But the risk involved is that if a show rates badly, the whole schedule can be in ruins. Ted held a special event to launch the show. Mumbrella's reporter Alice Terlikowski asked Mott how the show would rate. He'd been coached by his PR people not to be entrapped into giving a number. You're not going to get me with that one. Alice persisted. Is there a plan B? Mott started to reply, there's always, and then stopped himself. No, we are so certain about the series. We are very happy with the way it looks, the opportunity it brings for clients and advertisers and viewers. The no plan B headline would be regularly quoted back in the weeks that followed when he needed a plan B. Ten launched the renovators on a Sunday night, the best day of the week to give a new show a chance of finding an audience. To give it an additional boost, the network tried an extra scheduling trick. It ran the first episode of The Renovators on the same night as the series finale of its third season of MasterChef, which was still rating strongly. But to the fury of MasterChef fans, Ten split the cooking show down the middle. It showed the final cooking challenges, then stopped the show for the first episode of The Renovators. Fans wanting to find out the third MasterChef winner had to wait. The decision, which felt disrespectful to viewers, was ripped apart on social media. Angry MasterChef fans hate-watched the renovators, tweeting their disdain. The plan backfired. Despite inheriting an audience of 1.734 million from MasterChef, the renovators averaged just 856,000. It was crushed by Nines the Block, which rated 1.828 million and was top show for the night. Things didn't improve in subsequent days, with the renovators never getting close to the million-plus audience it needed to justify the production expense and the prominent time slot. The block was consistently scoring audiences twice its size. Ten tried pushing back the start time of the renovators to 8pm to avoid going head-to-head with the block. That made it even easier for the block, which continued to pull audiences of 1.5 million, while the renovators was stuck below 800,000. The rest of Ten's 2011 slate was a bust. Don't Stop Believing, a Glee-inspired shiny floor show promised in the year's upfronts, never even made it into production. And Class Of in which education experts attempt to help turn around a failing classroom, was pushed back until 2012. With little more left to say to the advertising market about the year in progress, Ten held its 2012 upfront unusually early in August 2011. It was an attempt to sew up some early deals with the ad market before Seven and Nine unveiled their wares. The formal part of the presentation took place at the Sydney Theatre Company on Hickson Road. Lachlan Murdoch took a coded swipe at ex-CEO Blackley. To be brutally honest, a couple of years ago, Ten had lost its mojo. But we have rediscovered it, we have reinvested in it, and we have re-energised it, he told the audience of 600 media agency bosses, marketers and trade press journalists. One of the messages was that the brief flirtation with an older audience was over. It was back to the under 40s. And there was an even bigger announcement. Having tried and failed to take on 9 and 7 in news and current affairs, now 10 was going to try to go head-to-head with them in the morning instead. 
there would be a third commercial breakfast show to compete with Seven Sunrise and Nines Today. Ten had vacated the battleground when it axed Good Morning Australia in 2005. And it was even more crowded now, for the ABC had launched News Breakfast on ABC2 in 2008, before moving it onto its main channel in 2011. Former doctor Andrew Rochford, who'd built a TV career after winning the block in 2004, was the only presenter for Ten's new breakfast show, Unveiled on the Night. It's going to be different. When people roll out of bed, they want to be informed. It's going to bring a little bit of life into breakfast television. It's getting a bit tired nowadays, he told the crowd. After the presentation, braver guests accepted lifts to the after-party across the road at Simmer on the Bay as pillion passengers on Harley-Davidson motorbikes in a tie-in with Ten's new drama, Bikey Wars. The night ended with the extraordinary sight of a truck parked outside the front door of the venue and each departing guest being offered a television to take home with them. Ten was now so desperate it was giving away TVs off the back of a lorry. Being James Warburton Once he was allowed to start at 10 in 2012, James Warburton got to the office before most of the staff were back from their Christmas holidays. When he was shown the numbers by Chief Financial Officer Paul Anderson, he realised things were even worse than he'd been expecting. You could tell on day one it was going to be a disaster, he recalls. I turned up on the 2nd of January, looked at the numbers, and we'd missed November by 65 million. I said to Paul Anderson, there's a typo. Warburton's first key hire was a big surprise for the advertising market. The boss of ad sales at any TV network is a crucial role. It was the route that Warburton had trod after crossing to television from Adland. Ratings help, but the ability to maintain relationships with media agency bosses and big advertisers is one of the key parts of the job, which is why TV network sales bosses have usually been in the role for years. A close second comes the ability to negotiate, which relies on understanding what advertisers really need and want. Warburton turned to the parallel world of advertising agencies and hired strategist Mike Morrison as chief sales officer. Given his lack of TV sales experience, Morrison's appointment to the role seemed an odd one to the market and to the sales team who would be reporting to him. Perhaps, people assumed, Warburton would handle some of the relationship stuff given that he'd led seven sales offering and already knew all of the clients. And maybe the rationale went, there'd be advertising clients who'd welcome deeper, more strategic conversations about their business than the spots and dots of simply booking a campaign plan. I wanted to try something different, says Warburton. I wanted someone who could have a very different sort of conversation with marketers. It didn't work. A few weeks in, one of the media agency bosses told me that he was deeply unimpressed with Warburton's hire. Morrison may have been a smart strategist, but he wouldn't shut up and listen to his customer for two minutes, I was told. The market revolted pretty much straight away, acknowledges Warburton. Morrison was gone by June. On Morrison's LinkedIn profile now, his job description for his brief time at 10 simply reads, to sell $50 million a month in ad sales without any ratings. Then there was breakfast. It launched just after Warburton started 
but it was the baby of Lachlan Murdoch, who was now Thames chairman. The hiring that defined the show was Paul Henry, perhaps New Zealand's most controversial broadcasting personality. He'd resigned from the morning show on TVNZ in October 2010 after his on-air mocking of the Indian family name, Dick Shit, caused an uproar. Henry was an individualistic, funny broadcaster, but the opposite of the cosy, unthreatening mould of the male hosts that breakfast TV viewers were used to on 9 and 7 in Carl Stefanovic and David Koch. Early in his tenure on today, a Wikipedia user had cruelly altered Nine's entry to list Stefanovic as the first robot to present a television show. Henry was also unknown to the Australian audience. In the announcement, David Mott said, Paul is exactly what we've been after for breakfast. He's cheeky, mischievous and unapologetically forthright, just like Ten's viewers. Well, you can't ever be sure what Paul will do. When he's on air, you know he's going to tackle the elephant in the room. Behind the scenes, it was an inexperienced crew. It was executive producer Magella Weemers' first time working on a breakfast show other than as a stand-in weather presenter on Nines Today. She'd previously worked as a producer at production house Southern Star. Henry would later observe that if he ever tried to go off script, the crew struggled to react fast enough. At the time, I asked whether he found working with an inexperienced team frustrating. In every way, he responded. Where do I begin? You want everybody to be on the same page at the same time? I'll call for shots, and I can imagine there are 20 people in the control room thinking, why didn't that arse tell us what he was going to do? There were obvious tensions in the lineup. Henry was the natural star of the show, and always seemed to be two seconds ahead of his co-stars. But Ten wanted an ensemble. The promotional shot for breakfast foreshadowed the tensions, showing Andrew Rochford with his hand across Henry's mouth. Co-host Catherine Robinson was new to being an on-air personality, having come from a news background, and weather presenter Magdalena Rose was not long off the Weather Channel. The idea seemed to be that Henry would be cheeky, and the others would theatrically bring him back into line. Ten's management would have known it would be a slow start when the show kicked off in February 2012. But it was still a disappointing beginning. Between 8.45am and 9am, the first day of breakfast officially scored a zero rating in Melbourne. Across the five capital cities, it averaged 49,000 viewers. Breakfast was crushed by Seven Sunrise, which rated 399,000, and Nines Today, which pulled in 348,000. And the next week, Breakfast's average dropped to 41,000 viewers. That elephant in the room from David Mott's press release would come back to haunt 10 once the show was on air. A clip of guest Sean McAuliffe on the couch to promote his 10 show, talking about your generation, rampaging around the breakfast set and climbing on the furniture, went viral, reaching far more viewers on YouTube than the show ever did. In a lazy segment idea, debating the differences between generations, the comedian didn't try to hide his contempt for the trite format as Henry and Robinson failed to get him back on track. Paul, are you going to point out the elephant in the room? taunted McAuliffe at one point. 
I point out the elephant in the room too, you know. I shoot the elephant and I remove its tusks. That's two steps further. There was also obvious antipathy between Rochford and Henry. Soon Rochford would be gone, first from the couch, presenting links from outside the studio, and then from the show altogether. It would leave Robinson stuck in the cliched broadcasting role of the woman tut-tutting at her co-host's excesses. Rochford would later tell the Sydney Morning Herald, My personal theory is that somebody who was publicised for pointing out the white elephant in the room became the white elephant in the room. In July, executive producer Weimer's exit was also announced. The show, which rarely broke 40,000 viewers, didn't quite make it to the end of 2012 before the axe fell. During the final episode, on the 30th of November, Henry dryly told the audience, I decided I would dedicate the last programme to the viewers. There weren't many of you because we decided early on to go for quality over quantity. In hindsight, a mistake. The ups and downs of advertising revenue tend to lag rating performance by a year or so, as media agencies often make their future deals based on current ratings performance. So the calamities of the 2011 ratings began to hit 10's bottom line in 2012. In the company's half-year results through to the end of February 2012, 10's TV advertising revenue had fallen by 11.3%. At the same time, the running costs had grown by 2.4%. Profits had fallen by 40.2% compared to the same time the year before, which had been Blackley's last period in charge. If nine had been the ratings dunce in 2010 and 2011, It was to be Ten's turn in 2012. It came as some of the older certainties of commercial television were falling away. Big US-made dramas were no longer reliably attracting Australian audiences and social media commentary was replacing word of mouth as a way of making, or just as often breaking, new shows. Warburton and Mott rolled the dice several times as they switched away from the strict content approach after the disaster of the renovators for a series of smaller bets. It would no longer be about one bet, one punch, said Warburton. Whatever golden touch Warburton had displayed in advertising sales at seven was not being repeated now he was involved in making content decisions. At the end of 2012, Mumbrella published a list of the biggest TV flops of the year. Six of the seven on the list came from ten. Fly on the Wall reality series Being Lara Bingle demonstrated that the Australian model, best known for the 2006 Where the Bloody Hell Are You ad for Tourism Australia, led a pretty dull life in Bondi. The fake reality drama of The Shire, featuring vacuous personalities from New South Wales's Sutherland Shire, was controversial because local politicians didn't like how it represented the place. Despite the news coverage, nobody watched. I Will Survive was a talent show in which the prize was playing the part of a drag queen in the Priscilla Queen of the Desert stage show. It was well made, but didn't rate. And neither did Bikey Wars, which Ten had hoped would deliver the sort of audiences Nine had achieved with 2008's Underbelly. The biggest flop of the year 
Everybody Dance Now, marked the final chapter in the on-screen career of Lachlan Murdoch's wife, Sarah. It was her first big show since a disaster in September 2010 when she hosted the live final of Australia's Next Top Model on Foxtel's entertainment channel, Fox 8. Murdoch had announced young model Kelsey Martinovich as the winner, only to tell the audience a few minutes later that there'd been a mistake and the real winner was Amanda Ware. Management at the Murdoch-aligned Foxtel had circled the wagons and, while refusing to explain what had occurred, insisted that next top model was not Mrs Murdoch's fault. The only phone call I ever received from Foxtel's director of television, Brian Walsh, was to emphasise that point. Produced by Fremantle Media, Everybody Dance Now was, like the renovators, another big-budget, untried format. It featured troops of amateur and professional dancers doing battle in nightly dance-offs. American musicians Jason Derulo and Kelly Rowland led the two sides before a live studio audience voted on winners. Ten scheduled the first episode of the show on a tough ratings night, the final evening of Nine's coverage of the 2012 London Olympics on the 12th of August. Everybody Dance Now rated just 598,000, while the Olympics pulled in 1.3 million for Nine. The dance contest was beaten into fourth place in its time slot. The Monday and Tuesday episodes of Everybody Dance Now did even worse, rating just 304,000 and 324,000. Nine was beginning to find its groove again, and the switch of networks for Ten's old show, Big Brother, relentlessly promoted during Nine's Olympics coverage, was working out well on its new channel. Ten ripped up its plans, cutting the Everybody Dance Now episode planned for the Sunday from 90 minutes to an hour. Beleaguered Chief Programming Officer David Mopp was rolled out for the press release, promising to reset the show. It didn't work. The show rated just 385,000, a remarkably low number for prime time on Sunday night. After emergency meetings, 10 decided everybody danced now could not be saved. Rather than shift it to one of the digital channels, it was axed altogether. This time, Warburton put his name to the press release, conceding, Although we worked with Fremantle Media to reset the programme, clearly it has not struck a chord with viewers. Three days later, Ten announced the resignation of the well-regarded Mott, who had been with the network for 16 years. In the press release, he said, In a job where you live and die by the numbers, Perhaps I've been luckier than most. Ten was becoming known as the Make Goods Network because of the number of times advertisers had to be compensated with bonus inventory when the ads they booked didn't reach the audience numbers they'd been promised. With AFL gone and none of the new shows rating, the August 2012 NRL negotiations were going to be crucial. Murdoch had seemed curiously confident of winning despite incumbent nine holding the vital first and last bidding rights. That is, nine got to make the opening offer and had the opportunity to come in over the top of any other bidder at the end. The only exception would be if an initial bid 
came in at more than 20% higher than Nine's, which would extinguish Nine's last bid rights. News Limited's Fox Sports, which was chasing the pay TV rights, teamed up with Nine for the bidding because of the advantage the first and last rights gave. Ten was set to put in a blockbuster bid, but at the last, Lachlan Murdoch dropped Ten's bid slightly lower than initially planned, offering $1.1 billion over six years. The curious recalculation was a misstep. Ten's bid was not quite 20% above Nine's, so the last bid right was not extinguished. Nine got to make the final offer. Nine and Foxtel won by shortening the proposed contract to five years and offering a deal worth $1.025 billion. Nine's Gingell had outplayed Ten's Murdoch. There was speculation afterwards that Murdoch had wanted Fox Sports to bid alongside Ten and felt let down by News Limited boss Kim Williams. Just as News Corp's Shine had sold the voice to Nine, there was no favourable treatment from Fox Sports for Lachlan Murdoch, who still seemed to be on the outer from the company, despite remaining as a board director. The implications seemed to be that if he wanted help from the family, he'd need to come back within the fold. With no AFL or NRL, Ten was now at a massive disadvantage to seven and nine. Ten's balance sheet was also becoming an issue. As the falling share price drove down the company's market capitalisation, its debt levels began to look more and more dangerous. In June, Ten issued more shares to the market to raise $200 million, partly to pay down debt and partly to invest in new programming. In turn, having more shares on issue meant that the share price declined some more. The only major media asset Ten owned away from television was its outdoor advertising company, I. It was time to start selling the family silver to get the debt down. Warburton brokered a deal with Champ Private Equity, the firm which had bought outdoor company O Media a few months before for $163 million. The takeover of I by O Media would mark another round of consolidation in the outdoor marketing industry. In July 2012, the two sides agreed a price of $145 million. The initial deal collapsed when Champ got a look at I's books, but the two sides finally reached a new deal in October 2012 for a reduced price of $113 million. It wasn't enough to get Ten's finances back on track. Its TV revenues for its full financial year were even worse, down by 14.5% to $728 million. And TV costs were up again by 7.5%. It meant that the network's profits were down on the year before by nearly half. In December, the company went back to shareholders a second time, aiming to raise another $230 million to be prudent. The share price fell even further. By the end of the year, Warburton realised he was on the way out, with board members not wanting to look him in the eye. In February 2013, he became the second 10 CEO in a row to be sacked by the board. The press release went out on a Friday night and came as a surprise for the industry. Nobody thought 10 would axe a second CEO so quickly, 
The firing came just a day short of the two-year anniversary of Grant Blackley's firing. That night I published a piece for Mumbrella about Warburton's exit and Ten's awful 2012. If you were to write a book about the worst year in a network's life, this would be it, I wrote. After Warburton's firing, he took a call from Eddie Maguire, who'd gone through his own abrupt exit as Nine CEO. Maguire told Warburton, you might lose confidence, but you never lose your ability. Warburton concedes, it probably does dent your confidence at the time, but I thought I'd done it as successfully as I could. I don't think there was much I could have changed. Hamish the Hammer The next 10 CEO was Hamish McLennan. McLennan had come up through the advertising agency world, starting out as the driver for the chairman of fabled Sydney agency George Patterson and working his way to the top. By the time he left his advertising career in 2011, George Patterson had been taken over by the agency Young and Rubicum to become GPYNR, and McLennan was global chairman. He was an effective operator and had earned a reputation as a ruthless cutter of costs and the nickname Hamish the Hammer to go with it. Once again, the 10 board had brought in somebody with no programming experience. What McLennan did have going for him was the Murdoch family's confidence. He was chairman of the News Corp aligned REA Group, which had been Lachlan's best investment. And he'd been working directly for Rupert Murdoch in New York with the somewhat nebulous job title of Executive Vice President, Office of the Chairman. His appointment led to immediate speculation that this was the beginning of an attempt to bring Ten back into the News Corp orbit. In an interview shortly before starting the job, McLennan was quoted in Mumbrella as saying, I believe things have been done wrongly here, but we can turn it around. It's just coincidental that Lachlan and I have long had a direct relationship and that I've spent the past year working for News Corporation. The previous strategy of chasing the under-40s audience was over, signalled McLennan. Now, Ten will be going older yet again, pursuing the young at heart, 25 to 54 age group, the same advertiser-friendly demographic, chased by nine and seven. David Mott's successor as Chief Programming Officer, Beverly McGarvey, had made her first big commission. In May 2013, Ten announced it would be airing a local version of dating show The Bachelor. McLennan's first strategic move was to chase more sport. In May, he picked up the rights to air the 2014 Winter Olympics from Sochi in Russia for around $20 million. More significantly, he attempted to snatch the cricket from Nine, which had been the TV home of the code for the previous 32 years. While AFL and NRL are the two most significant sports to the TV networks, tennis and cricket are not far behind. McLennan bid big, offering $500 million for the rights for both Big Bash and international games over the next five years. Once again, incumbent last rights saved nine. It allowed the network to come in over the top of Ten's bid, 
offering $400 million in cash, plus $50 million worth of advertising, for the rights to air Australia's international games for the next five years. Ten got the $100 million consolation prize of Big Bash, the up-and-coming new short-form version of the game, which had been airing on Fox Sports for the previous two years. A few days later, I interviewed McLennan at the Mumbrella 360 conference. In the green room beforehand, he hinted that if I were to ask him about how 10 came to the $100 million price offer, he'd have an amusing answer. On stage, I asked the question. We picked a number that was fair and reasonable and then added $20 million to it, he replied. We are delighted with the Big Bash and believe it is a format with a hell of a lot of potential and it is a foot in the door of more live sport that is incredibly important for a free-to-air network. He was right. Big Bash proved to be one of the bargains of the decade, delivering 10 hours of reliable, respectably rating programming. When I pushed him on stage about rumours that 10 was going to try again with a breakfast show, he was more coy. The big reveal came a month later. Adam Boland, the man who'd created Sunrise and The Morning Show for Seven, would be working for 10. He would be responsible for a daunting seven-hour daily slice of the schedule from 5am to midday. Breakfast show Wake Up would be followed by Ensemble Mid-Morning Show Studio 10. 10 invested heavily in the production for Wake Up, presented live from Queenscliff Surf Life Saving Club at Sydney's picturesque Manly Beach. It would require a two-month fit-out and $100,000 a year fibre-optic links to the 10 headquarters in Piermont, where the show control room would be based. Wake Up was presented by music television veteran James Matheson, newsreader Natasha Belling, and the relatively inexperienced 10 newsroom journalist Natasha Axelby. In an innovation for breakfast television, localised state bulletins were read by Nuala Hafner from a glass box at Federation Square in Melbourne. At the launch, Boland said that Wake Up would be driven by social media and would have four social media producers. It will be like watching an FM radio show on television, he told the press conference. Meanwhile, Studio 10, which would make its money through advertorials, would have a cast that included former magazine doyen Ita Buttrose, News Limited columnist Joe Hildebrand, former Today presenter Jessica Rowe, and TV personality Sarah Harris. Wake Up was in trouble even before going to air. The show had been conceived in James Warburton's final days, when the network was targeting the younger demographic. But now that 10 was going after the same older audience as 7 and 9, the location and format made less sense. Even the choice of the young James Matheson as presenter was questionable for that audience. Boland would later write in his memoir, Brecky Central, Instead of starting from scratch, I held on to key features from the original plan, including both the beach studio and James. I was so against the idea of producing another sunrise that I tried to force a square peg into a round hole. Wake Up finally launched on Monday the 4th of November to a disappointing average audience of 47,000, even lower than Breakfast's debut. In the ranking of shows, it was 219th for the day. 
Studio 10's first day fared fractionally better, with an average audience of 61,000. Behind the scenes, Boland, who had already been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, was suffering from a mental health emergency. He struggled to get through the second day's show and ended up being admitted for psychiatric care at St Vincent's Hospital. Studio 10's executive producer, Rob McKnight, had to step up to caretake both shows. The show's second week kicked off with what seemed like a metaphor. Ita Buttrose appeared as a guest in the wake-up studio in Manly before taking a water taxi for the journey to Studio 10 back at 10's Piermont headquarters, accompanied by Wake Up's roving reporter Sam Mack and a live camera. The water taxi broke down and the duo ended up stranded in choppy waters in the middle of the Sydney Heads. When Boland returned after a fortnight away from the show, he decided that the three-way presenter lineup of Matheson, Exelby and Belling wasn't working. On his first day back, he fired Exelby from the show, explaining in the announcement, I have said repeatedly that chemistry is everything at breakfast and, right now, I don't think the balance is correct. It's up to producers to fix these things. I rate Natasha, Natasha and James extremely highly individually, otherwise they wouldn't have been there in the first place. I also saw genuine spark during show rehearsals, but sometimes that doesn't translate on air. That is nobody's fault except mine. Less than a week later, Boland became increasingly unwell again. Diagnosed with what he said in his book was biological melancholic depression, he resigned in January 2014 to be replaced by former Today Show producer Steve Wood. In March, there was one last shake-up for Wake Up. With the show averaging just 34,000 viewers per day, news presenter Nula Hafner was switched from her Federation Square glass box to join Matheson and Belling in Manly. The localised state bulletins Hafner had been reading were scrapped in favour of a single national one. There was to be no long haul. In May, McLennan axed the show, along with 10's early morning and late news bulletins. This time, some 150 jobs would be cut. Newly appointed head of news Peter Meakin was asked by the Australian Financial Review whether he'd be staying with the organisation. He replied, I think it's a question for the board and it's up to them whether they need an admiral when they don't have a fleet. But Studio 10 survived and became a successful fixture on the network for several years. The viability of the business was also under growing question. It was facing a double squeeze. Not only was the amount spent on TV advertising slowly declining, but Ten's share of that shrinking pie was also falling. Industry wisdom was that because Ten had lower costs than 9 and 7, it only needed a 22% ad share to be profitable. The glory days of the first season of MasterChef in 2009 had delivered Ten a share of 30% of the TV advertising market. That had declined to about 27.9% during Lachlan Murdoch's time as acting CEO. The chopping and changing of ad sales management under Warburton had seen Ten's advertising share drop to 25.5% in his first six months and then fall drastically 
to 21.6%, below the crucial 22% profitability point. During 2013, under Hamish McLennan, the number had crept back towards 21.9% for the first half of the year, before sagging to a new low of 21.5%. On its own, the TV network itself was just about making a profit, but as Nine had experienced in 2012, Ten was not so profitable that it could afford to pay its bank loans when they came due. Ten's lender, Combank, was concerned enough about the company's viability that in November 2013, it only agreed to extend its $200 million loan facility if somebody guaranteed the loan. Shareholders Lachlan Murdoch, James Packer and Wynn founder Bruce Gordon stepped up. If Ten could not repay the loan when it came due in November 2017, they'd be on the hook. Then came a seismic moment... In March 2014, Lachlan Murdoch went back to News Corp after nearly a decade in the wilderness. He kept his stake in 10, but resigned the chairmanship. Hamish McLennan accepted the additional role of executive chairman on top of the CEO role. Little more than a year later, in July 2015, a few months after saying at the annual general meeting that he was 110% committed to the company, McLennan departed to be replaced as CEO by Paul Anderson, who had been promoted from Chief Financial Officer to Chief Operating Officer in 2014. It now looked like just a matter of time before the coalition government changed the media ownership laws to allow News Corp to take over 10. The connections were getting closer. As well as being a big customer of News Corp's production house, Shine, Ten had a large studio output deal with News Corp's sister company, 21st Century Fox, which owned The Simpsons. Speculation was growing that the advertising sales house for Foxtel, MCN, might soon take over the advertising sales for Ten. In 2015, the board announced it needed to do yet another round of fundraising. Foxtel, aligned to News Corp, agreed to buy 15% of the company, for $77 million. Around 120 of Ten's 150 sales staff moved across to MCN. This meant that the same sales team would now be selling ads across Ten and the Foxtel channels. To further increase the entanglement, MCN would indeed take over the advertising sales for Ten, and in turn, Ten would acquire a 24.99% stake in MCN. Ten would also be able to take a 10% stake in the fledgling Presto streaming joint venture between Foxtel and Seven. Foxtel boss Peter Tonner joined the Ten board, and Lachlan Murdoch still had his personal 9% stake. It was looking like a not-so-stealthy takeover. However, there was still one major regulatory hurdle. As the media ownership laws stood a News Corp takeover would potentially breach the two out of three media ownership rule. The company would own newspapers, television, and through Lachlan Murdoch's Nova Entertainment, radio. The part of the story that even the best salespeople in the world could not change was the fact that 10 was still a distant third place in the ratings, or fourth, if you count the non-commercial ABC. Under McLennan and Chief Programming Officer, 
Beverly McGarvey, Ten had clawed back some ratings stability. The Bachelor had found a decent younger audience and was creating a lot of noise on social media. I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here had launched well and reality show Survivor Australia made a solid debut in 2016. But the network was still well behind nine and seven. A time bomb was ticking. The $200 million Combank debt would soon come due. And management consultants McKinsey were in the building. The first I noticed something was up was in March 2017. Siobhan McKenna, who had been Lachlan Murdoch's director on the board, resigned. It seemed odd that Murdoch did not want to replace her on the board. I wrote at the time, You can see why the departure of Lachlan Murdoch's representative Siobhan McKenna from the board starts looking like very interesting timing, particularly the fact that he does not propose to nominate a replacement. Really? Put yourself in Lachlan Murdoch's shoes. Now back working at News Corp, you own about 9% of 10. The family-aligned Foxtel owns another 15%. You're on the hook as the guarantor of a $200 million loan. And you're not interested in having a director in the room when the board gets to discuss what happens next? What I was getting at was, who wants to suffer the reputational risk of being a director of a company that goes broke? Suddenly, events were moving fast. In April, Anderson had bad news for his long-suffering shareholders. The company had made a net loss of $232 million for the first half of its financial year. The first duty of board directors is to make sure that a company is capable of paying its debts when they become due. The board update carried a warning. There is a material uncertainty that may cast significant doubt on the group's ability to continue as a going concern and, therefore, that it may be unable to realise its assets and discharge its liabilities in the normal course of business. There was more. The group understands from discussions with shareholder guarantors that it needs to demonstrate the potential for improved future earnings in order for a new facility to be guaranteed. In other words, Murdoch, Packer and Gordon were bulking at guaranteeing a new $250 million loan facility when the old one expired at the end of the year. At the beginning of May, Packer privately told the board that he was out. In June, Murdoch's investment vehicle Illyria and Gordon's investment vehicle Beketu pulled the plug. After two emergency board meetings, Ten told the ASX it was going into administration. This decision follows correspondence received from Ilria and Burketu over the weekend, which left the directors with no choice but to appoint administrators. Administrators Corda Mentha were now in charge. Ownership of Ten was up for grabs. And Lachlan Murdoch looked like the red-hot favourite. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. 
Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in Northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.